It pierced their gas tank, which immediately exploded, killing six of their children. Standing before the microphones and cameras a few days later, talking about the accident, the Willises stood before TV audience that was watching and Scott Willis said, the depth of our pain is indescribable. However, the Bible expresses our feelings that we sorrow, but not as those without hope. What gives us our firm foundation for hope are the words of God found in Scripture. Ben, Joe, Sam, Hank, Elizabeth, and Peter are all with Jesus Christ. We know where they are. Our strength rests in God's Word. Fourteen years after the tragic event, Janet said, Today I have a far greater understanding of the goodness of God than I did before the accident. Scott said, I have a stronger view of God's sovereignty than ever before. Is that denial or wishful thinking or just somehow the human heart trying to make the best of a tragic situation? Jane and Scott said this also, what would you say to those when they were asked the question, what would you say to those who reject the Christian faith because they think that no plan of God, nothing at all could possibly worth be worth the suffering of your children and your suffering over all these years? Janet said this, listen, eternity is a long time. It will be worth it. Our children's suffering was brief and they have the eternal joy of being with God. We and their grandparents have suffered since, but our suffering has been small compared to our children's joy. Fourteen years is a short time compared to eternity. We'll be with them there forever. What a great testimony. What an embracing fully that full of, few of us will ever understand of the goodness of God and the sovereignty of God and the temporary nature of this life and how wonderful eternity will be in Christ. If you have a biblical view of the goodness of God, you're in a very small minority of the 7 billion people on this planet. Even though many have some idea of God, to see God's goodness through the lens of revealed truth puts you in a very, very small group of people. I would even add that among professing Christians, that number or percentage would remain relatively low to have a proper and biblical understanding of the goodness of God. I have three propositions about the goodness of God this morning. 
that I want to try to bring to you as God gives me strength and as you pray that He would. Number one, there is an instinctive response to the goodness of God. Number two, there must be an intellectual rebellion in order to reject the goodness of God. And number three, those that come to God do so because they come to an inescapable conclusion about the goodness of God. Well, first, let's consider the the instinctive response of the heart of man who is created by God to His goodness. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm. Just keep your Bible open there to the Psalms. First, turn to Psalm 145. As I quote Psalm 33, and we're going to read Psalm 145 in a moment. The instinctive response in the heart of man, because we were created by God to His goodness. Psalm 33.5 says, The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Some of your translations there will have instead of goodness, the steadfast love of the Lord. It's a good translation. I like that. The goodness of our God. He is steady, never wavering, never faltering, never diminished at all in His love toward His people. In Genesis chapter 1, as you're finding Psalm 145, we'll be there in a moment. In Genesis chapter 1, the creation story, seven times in Genesis 1 and 2, the Lord of the whole earth pronounces what He has made. It is good. It is good. It is good. It is good. The whole earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. He is good to all, not because all are good, but because He alone is good. The psalmist says in chapter 145, verse 3, if you found it there, great is the Lord and highly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts and I will tell of your greatness. They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all and His mercies are over all His works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. And they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. It's an instinctive response 
in the heart of men to understand intuitively that God is good. Even though men may not praise Him, may not know Him personally, I believe this is seen almost universally in response to human tragedy, in response to calamity, our immense suffering. You almost universally hear people respond in that instant or that moment, Oh! Oh my God! Oh God! If you've ever heard the tapes of 911, and you heard the audio while people were taking pictures responding to the attacks in New York, you hear it over and over again. Oh God! Oh my God! I believe that the heart of man, without even realizing it, without even maybe personally knowing God or understanding God, is crying out at those moments, knowing that what is happening is not what should be happening. That the brokenness and evil and tragedy and calamity in our world are not what God intended. The heart knows that. That God intended good. That God blessed all He had created. That God intends good for man. And so when we see something that is so shocking to our senses, that is, that is so that so assaults what we know instinctively and within ourselves that counters the goodness of God, I believe that man's heart cries out, Oh God! Oh God! Secondly, I propose that there must be an intellectual rebellion in the mind of man. The heart of man instinctively knows that God is good. But to reject the goodness of God, I think in the mind of man, there must be an intellectual rebellion. For those who do not want to accept the goodness of God, because they don't want to accept the God who is good. This rebellion is nurtured and rooted in a lie. A very ancient but very effective lie. Which is, God is not good. Or can we be certain of God's goodness? This deception worked with Eve and still pulls her children into the darkness of that very same deception. Thoughts of, you can make your own goodness by your choices. You're happy when you live your life on your own terms or create your own best life now with no regard for God's best, His goodness. If you seek to find goodness anywhere else or in anything else or in anyone else other than God, you've bought in to this lie. There is no ultimate Goodness, no transcendent goodness, no goodness that has the value that the goodness of God has. And so many believe that same old lie of the enemy. Has God said? 
Is God really concerned for you, for what you want? If He was, He would let you choose. He would let you make your own happiness. He would let you take of life as you want to. That was the lie that Satan gave to Eve. That there's something better than God. There's goodness other than God's goodness. There's something best for you outside of God's best. Most people buy into that lie in our world. Most people sadly believe it. Many professing Christians and many preachers buy into that lie. But there's no ultimate goodness. There is no best outside of God's goodness and His best. It's a lie that blinds all who embrace it. It's a horrible lie. It's the worst lie ever. It's a sin of rebellion against God. And every sin is a sin against God's goodness. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. He writes this, Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. The goodness of God is revealed in creation. It's evident everywhere. Creation is speaking constantly to the goodness of God. That's the most basic level of communication that God gives to everyone. That He is good and all that He has made is good. And everyone is responsible for seeing that and recognizing God's goodness at least on that level. So they are without excuse. They have to intellectually make up their mind that God is not good. Paul goes on to say in verse 21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. Give thanks for what? Give thanks for the goodness of God. They did not honor Him or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. Where are their speculations? In their mind. That's their thoughts. They intellectually reject the goodness of God in their thinking. And their foolish heart was darkened. Paul is saying because of their thoughts about God, their refusal to be thankful for His goodness, their mind intellectually rebelled against all that they see every day with their eyes. Every day they take in the goodness of our God revealed in creation. And then their heart, their very soul becomes darkened. Paul goes on to say in verse 28 of Romans chapter 1, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy and murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanders, 
haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, and disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And he continues in chapter 2, in verse 1, Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. If you see in others, but you don't see in yourself. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. In other words, Paul was saying, I'm speaking to those, first of all, who do not recognize God's goodness in creation. And now Paul turns his gaze toward those who should recognize clearly and understand fully, especially the Jewish audience who knew the Old Testament, whom God had revealed Himself to, made a covenant with them, and they too judge those who are not Jewish, and yet they themselves do the very same thing. That's what God is saying. That happens with us who profess Christ as Christians. We judge those who do not see the goodness of God, who do not know God, but we ourselves sometimes live lives as if God was not good. And Paul's saying we need to examine ourselves to see whether we're really trusting and really seeing the goodness of God. Verse 2, But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches, the overflowing wealth of His goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads to repentance? The goodness of God leads to repentance. Everyone who chooses not to believe or is deceived by a false view of God rejects God's goodness and does so willfully, bearing full personal responsibility because of the witness of creation and the law of God written in our hearts that is constantly in view. If you and I reject the goodness of God for any reason at all, we have no excuse for that. Third, I would submit that all who come to saving faith in Christ do so because they have their eyes opened to the full measure of God's goodness as shown at the cross. In Christ's death for us, God's goodness becomes the inescapable conclusion. Psalm 34.8 proclaims the invitation, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The Lord is good. 
merciful, gracious, tender, kind, steadfast in His love. We, bless you, we taste and see His goodness by recognizing, trusting, accepting by faith His death for our sins, His resurrection and power, His victory over evil, suffering, death, and hell. In effect, He triumphed over all that is not good. And in doing that, we see His goodness at the cross. At the cross where I first saw the light. Where the burden of my heart was rolled away. Romans 11.22 states, Behold the goodness and severity of God. What a contrast. The goodness and severity of God. Where do we see that? At the cross. We see the goodness of God plainly displayed. We see the severity of God against sin. They come together at the cross. Daddy, pray for me. Pray for me. We see the goodness and severity and the discipline of children also. They go together. The cross. The goodness of God taking away the severity of judgment for sin. The goodness of God seen in the love demonstrated as sacrificial blood was poured out. When we refuse God's goodness as seen at the cross, we reject the one true triune God. We reject the gentle shepherd, listen, who alone will lead us beside still waters into green pastures. Through dark, shadow-filled valleys, we reject the only one who is so good that He sets up a banquet feast in full view of the enemies of our soul. We reject the gentle healer who alone comforts us, calms our fears, restores our soul, leading us on a path of righteousness and goodness for His name's sake, pouring His grace like oil over us until our cup runs over with goodness. When we entrust our lives to God, surely, certainly, His goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. Don't you believe that? What a great promise for the children of God. What a great promise for me. What a great promise for you. Surely, His goodness and mercy will follow us. I want to live like that, don't you? I want my life to be a display of God's goodness, don't you? One of the greatest demonstrations of taste and see that the Lord is good is found in John chapter 21. John chapter 21. It's after the resurrection of Christ. Peter had denied our Lord. You remember that. He denied Him three times. One of the last things that Jesus did in relation with Peter, was to look over at Peter and for their eyes to meet after Peter's final and third and final denial. I don't know the look that Jesus gave him. 
But I believe it was not one of, how could you? It was not one of, you let me down. I believe it, it was not one that shot darts at Peter of disappointment and anger. I believe the Lord Jesus, as He was being led away, I believe He looked at him with kindness and with love and compassion. John 21 gives us the first encounter of Jesus and Peter after that last denial. The scene is set in exactly the same way as the first time that Jesus called Peter to Himself. Peter was out in his boat fishing, you'll remember, three years earlier. And Jesus was there on the shore and called to Peter after He had told him what side of the boat to cast his net on. And they caught fish and brought it in. And Jesus said, Peter, follow Me and I'll make you fishers of men. Now it was the same exact setting telling Peter, I called you and you're Mine and you're still Mine. So you see the scene set up. And in verse 15, so when they had finished, in verse, I'm sorry, in verse 4, and when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered him, No. That's a hard thing for fishermen to say, to admit. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. Now, here's a guy that they didn't know was Jesus standing on the beach telling fishermen where to fish. I'll guarantee you, fishermen don't like that either. Who is this guy? And what does he know about fishing? If he was so good at fishing, he would be fishing. But he's telling us to fish. They didn't know that it was Jesus. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. John said to Peter, it's the Lord. This is just like He did three years ago. This is our Savior. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on for he was stripped for work in a loincloth where he could cast the net where his arms would be free. His upper body was not clothed so he could cast the net. So he wrapped his outer garment on him and he threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. They brought it to the side of the boat, but they couldn't get it in the boat, and so they drug it. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already prepared, and fish on it, and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you've now caught. Now that's a good morning for fishermen. To catch all the fish that they can carry and then to come in 
and breakfast is already made. They didn't even have to clean the fish. It was there. What overabundance of kindness. What grace. What tenderness. The Lord had prepared for them. The Lord had given to them out of the abundance of His goodness. They had all forsook Him and fled at the cross. Only John remained there. Peter had denied Him. And yet there Jesus was. Gave them this incredible haul of fish. Prepared for them breakfast of fish and bread. And He invited them in. Simon Peter, verse 11 says, went up and drew the net to land full of large fish. 153. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Verse 13, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish also. And then Jesus began to say to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Oh, how good, how precious the Lord is. How wonderful His goodness that He showed to Peter after Peter's denial, after Peter had rejected Him. You might have strayed away from the Lord. You might have even rejected the Lord. But I'll assure you this, His goodness still remains. His kindness towards you is still poured out. You may have gone against God and you may have rebelled against His plan, His goodness for your life. You may have pushed away His goodness, but I promise you, His goodness still remains. His kindness is still extended. Exodus chapter 33 and verse 18 says this, Then Moses said, I pray you, Show me your glory. And God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. Did you catch that? God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Moses said, show me your glory. Show me who you are, O God. And God said, okay. I'll make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. Oh, there's a place by God where we can see all of His goodness. There's a place hidden in the rock near to God where all of His goodness passes by. And it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. In in Exodus 34 just down a little bit in verse 5. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, Moses, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, 
long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. That's what the Lord was proclaiming about Himself. And His goodness was passing by, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That is our God passing by, full of goodness and mercy. All of His goodness passing by before Moses. And all of His goodness passes by before us in the context of humanity's darkest, most unjust, murderous moment, all His goodness passed before us. In the arrest of the Lord Jesus, He called to Judas as Judas came to Him. And He said, Friend, what kindness, what goodness. He addressed His traitor as friend. During the brief melee when Peter whipped out his sword and cut off Malchus's ear as he attempted to cut off his head, and Malchus must have ducked, and Peter cut off his ear. This was one who had come to arrest Jesus. Jesus picked up his ear and put it back upon his head and healed his enemy's ear. What kindness, what goodness. All of God's goodness passing before us. In His trial, He reviled not when He was scorned and reviled. He restrained His own judgment when He could have called thousands of warrior angels and wiped all of His enemies out. He did not utter a word unless He was asked a specific question. He did not speak to defend Himself, although He was unjustly accused and tried. All of His goodness was passing before us in His arrest and trial. When He was stripped and mocked and beating and dying and bleeding, His goodness passed before us. See all of God's goodness pass before you. On the cross, He forgave a wicked, unworthy criminal. He forgave him of his sins. On the cross, you see the goodness of God demonstrated. In no other way could it have been demonstrated in a greater measure. So much so, that a man who didn't know God, a Roman soldier, a leader of men, a centurion, when he saw the cross and he saw the Lord Jesus and he saw His goodness being poured out of Him as His blood dripped there, the centurion said, truly, this must have been and must be the Son of God. He recognized the goodness of God in all that he saw in Jesus at the cross. Can you see it? In His mighty resurrection, triumphing over all devils, Satan, the works of darkness and its kingdom's rule over men, we see all of His goodness pass before us. Recognize His goodness in sending the Holy Spirit to guide, convict, comfort, and empower you to live. All His goodness now passes before us in the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Bless you. See Christ, bless you, seated and enthroned, ruling and mediating and vacating and, and advocating 
presiding over all the world. He's enthroned in majesty right now. Can you see Him in all of His goodness? He's presiding over all the world for our good and His glory. Even to the extent, listen, that what is meant for harm toward us, He turns to good. Remember Genesis chapter 50 and the story of Joseph. See all His goodness pass before you this morning, people. Keep trusting in His goodness to return soon, displaying to the world for all to see His majesty and power and authority. Oh, that we would taste and see that the Lord is good. Will you this morning? Do you, child of God, daily taste His goodness? Look to the cross. All His goodness is passing before you. Hide yourself near to the God who is good as He passes before you, as His goodness passes before you. Do you see Him? Do you see our good God? Every head bowed and every eye closed. through my feeble attempt at bringing you the Word this morning, His goodness has passed before you. You and I are now accountable to God for what we heard and what we know. All of His goodness we accept as an inescapable conclusion the cross because we've seen it by faith. And we understand how good God has been to us in cross. Are we willfully and mentally reject His goodness? And we stand unex- inexcusable before the Lord God. And we will at the day of judgment without excuse. Where are you? Where are you?